0: Welcome to the Story Paths Podcast. I'm Theodore Lowry, and this is the podcast where we speak about the connections between story and culture.
1: To be brutally blunt, it's just like, okay, well, not a lot of white people are gonna read this story. Let's actually talk about the issues we need to talk about within our own communities, if that makes sense. (laughs) But like these broader stories, they allow these communities to have these conversations. I'm very happy to
0: have on the show today Elias Gold, he's a Diné or Navajo man, who runs a channel called Native Media Theory, which is how I came across him. And in this channel, he speaks about indigenous representation in literature and cinema over the years, speaking about different tropes and how they show up. And he speaks about what these stories tell us about those who made the stories those who produce the films and such in Hollywood, and also what these stories have told to Indigenous people who see themselves in the stories, not necessarily in the best light and a light that changes over the years, especially as Indigenous people step more and more into authorial and directorial roles in making these stories. So this episode is very much about this relationship between story and culture, how culture changes story, how story changes culture. And Elias Gold is a very intelligent and well-spoken, thoughtful, nuanced thinker. So I'm very happy to have him on the show.
1: she Elias Gold, My name is Elias Gold. I just listed my, my four clans, which my ancestry comes from. And I run a channel called Native Media Theory, where I discuss and analyze and talk about primarily Native American representation in film and other forms of media
0: thank you it'll be really interesting for our audience if you can take us through a journey especially in cinema representation of indigenous people participation of indigenous people in the stories that we all on this continent are making together telling about ourselves how indigenous people have been shown at different times what that says about settler culture who largely been in control of the media, what that says about the relationship between Indigenous people, broadly speaking, and settled people, broadly speaking, big categories. Yeah, if you could take us through some of that, some of that journey.
1: Yeah, you know, Indigenous representation started even before visual media. It kind of started more with the literature, the literature instead of literature itself, because they it talked about the... About the, the early Scandinavians and the Norse, the Vikings okay. who came across some tribes up north. We don't really know who exactly they met, but they call them the Skrælings. It's interesting to me how their worldview affected how they saw these people as opposed to like, you know, hundreds of years down the road with Columbus and Medigo Vespucci. Their worldview affected how they saw these people. And what was interesting about the Norse, it was pretty much just kind of matter of fact, like, yeah, these people are weird looking, but there wasn't like this really intense racial superiority. I'm sure there was a sense of it there, but they just kind of were like, yeah, they they came and left. They were there. And then we went back home. It's just kind of observational, which is ironic because they were the really explorers. But then you turn around and you go to Amerigo Vespucci and Christopher Columbus, who weren't technically explorers, they were merchants, and they came across Native peoples and their descriptions are much more detailed, of course, which makes a lot of sense, but they're products of their time. So, of course, there's gonna, this can be littered with a lot of that racial and cultural superiority. There's some sense that they're fascinated with these people, but they don't really listen to them even with people who are translating and everything. I like to say that's where it kind of all starts. (laughs) The legacy of representation of Native peoples starts as, I would say, the sexual objectification and exotification of Native women started as early as Amerigo Vespucci. And it captured the wonder of the Western world back in the day. And, of course, it sparked the rest of the colonial process and everything. From there... You know, you can go out. Literature kind of has its own journey of how Native peoples were portrayed.
0: Tribes of the North meet at River Rock to once and
1: forever wipe out all white. <laughs> They're easy antagonists. Um, unfortunately, kind of like with Hollywood films within the last 20 years or so, some obscure Middle Eastern radical group is like the easy bad guy. It was the same type of rhetoric that the Romans had against the Celts and the old Germanic peoples as well, othering them and having these exotic, but yet uncivilized groups of people. It takes a blue coat to make a white man a soldier. But a Cheyenne is a soldier from the first slap on his butt. War is his life. He's fierce, he's smart, and he's meaner than sick. Discovery doctrine was the foundation of all Western nations in their colonial rule. I don't want to say it's completely alive in today, but I would say in a more spiritual and cultural sense as opposed to policy. It's still mm-hmm. there. Economic interests, and there's also that cultural, that broader cultural influence to like, oh yeah, everybody needs to be Christian under this kingdom. Indians run their dot-gum-dot-blasted sheep over our land just like they owned it. A lot of the, the earliest tropes were about the brutal savage, the natives who were bloodthirsty had no soul and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And then as time went on, I guess you could say the, the, the white settler guilt started to, to seep in a lot.
0: How was he telling? M dead Kimasabe. You'd not be afraid. Sometimes mask i face a good friend. Now you tell why your hands tied, why you fight Indian. All right, I I guess I could use a couple of friends.
1: And A lot of authors Mm. in their work, they strive to have more nuanced characters. And so they would have a native sidekick or a character who was a protagonist, but this protagonist is either half native or part native, or they're like civilized, 100% civilized. Mm. But then these characters don't usually have a redeeming end. It's usually a tragedy. Red Hawk, not understand white man way of peace.
0: Maybe better fight. Maybe Red Hawk, him fight one last time.
1: That's the noble savage trope in a sense. The seedlings of the noble savage. I mean, like modern film examples would be even Thunderheart. You weigh uh, 173, huh? You're not a beer drinker. You're one of these tofu and pilaf characters. You wear your gun on your right hip, but you got a
0: backup. A little 32, 38 maybe. And an ankle holster.
1: Gives you a left foot drag. You're wearing brand new shoes that are a little too tight in the instep, but man, they look cool and that's what counts. Am I right? My horse? Fuck you. You'd love to. Thunderheart is actually a pretty interesting example of that too, where the main character is half Lakota, but then the person who's helping him along is, is Lakota, played by Graham Greene, and he kind of helps him along in his journey of rediscovering his roots and stuff like that. I think of Russell Means. Russell Means' character... And Last of the Mohicans to Danny Day Lewis's character. The original book was a lot more black and white. The film mm-hmm. tries to be a little more nuanced. But his character is definitely a bit of a noble savage, right? And of course, he does have his personal fight with Magua. And again, like these novels, they pit good Indians against bad Indians, if that makes sense. Sure. But it's the good Indians who are tolerable for the settler who are, they're comfortable f- with them, you know, they're, or for mm-hmm. them. Like Chief Dan George, unfortunately, was kind of typecasted as as having that type of trope in a lot of his the films he was in. Josie Jones, I think that's what it's called. Clint Eastwood's in that. And Chief Dan George, the actor, comes in and he's a bit subversive of the trope, but at the same time, ironically, fulfills the trope. Where he gives a lot of sage-like wisdom to our protagonist, and yeah, yes, yeah. If Wolves has it with Kicking Bird is kind of the fulfills that role for John Dumbuck. Of course, like, like I said, like they're not as they're not as overt that the, the films, especially in the '90s, they try to be a little more nuanced, but the remnants of that are still there. But that's a trope that began more so in, in literature, and so hmm. as time progressed, the noble savage became more like they on a, on a moral level and even on a spiritual level, they were superior than the white man, but they aren't given the same attention or depth to them. They kind of become right. one-sided and very very similar to the magico negro trope it's very right. those two tropes are kind of on the same plane You know a lot of people miss the point of that story. they think it's about God's wrath and anger. They love it when God gets angry. What is the
0: story about then, the Ark? Well, I think it's a love story. About believing in each other. You know, the animals showed up in Mm pairs. They stood by each other, side by side. Just like Noah and his family. Everybody entered the Ark side by side.
1: But my husband says
0: God told him to do it. What do you do with that? Sounds like an opportunity.
1: The Magical Negro, one example that comes to mind is actually a very recent example, and that was The Help. Emma Stone is in it, and that, that one just straight up just is all over, it's all over the place with it. And I would argue even it's trickled throughout in Disney's Princess and the Frog, where our protagonists are these quote unquote sensible Cajun black folk for you know the rich white people there.
0: here for your convenience (laughs) I play back up to the characters with dimensional backstories but you don't know me you don't know me cause I'm magical
1: whole damn country for a good chunk of the west they saw themselves as the heroes of their own stories Hmm. and of course everyone does but especially at the time manifest destiny mixed with discovery doctrine mixed in with christianity as a whole really gave everybody in the west this sense of god wants us to do this this is this is for the greater good of our civilization. White man's burden. And. Might be yeah, hard. And <laughs> and, <laughs> but I think that that's reflected in the storytelling, in where, again, the white protagonist, the, the settler, is at the forefront of everything. And even though they may be sympathetic towards marginalized groups, those people in those groups aren't meant to share the same status as them. That's especially reflected in a lot of the early romance novels as well. For Native men and women, there's this odd sense of, again, trickles of that sexual exotification where I just found this fascinating for me. Some of the novels that were written by women, they write about a white woman falling in love with a Native man. And they go into the actual sexual encounters with with their with their lover, hmm. but they try to portray this sense of savagery with hmm. their their native lovers, as if he's not completely civilized. That savagery is still in him in this raw state, or whatever. He loves her like not not just sexually, but in all forms. He's stoic and he's quiet, and like there's just this weird. It's it's really strange. And in the end, though, in most of these stories, the Native men usually go insane. Like Whoa. they have some sort of mental breakdown of sorts and are oh. taken away or they die or they just disappear. We and think that's the why they don't woman... know how to
0: resolve it. Like, you know, where's the happily ever after with that couple, like from different yeah. worlds like that? It...
1: And also, too, with any art that's going to start getting distributed, you know, publishers, obviously, back in the day, just like film executives now have a big say, this is going to sell and this isn't. I'd imagine that back in the day, a lot of the publishers were like, this white woman, she needs to, in the end, be with a white man.
0: Right. It's It's one thing to have a little fling, you know, kind of fantasy, but then settle down. Yeah and don't yeah, make
1: cultures like uh, let's get back to reality <laughs> i mean it's just like in little woman where the publisher was pressuring her to make her her character marry you know it's mm. pretty much the exact same thing and so I, I, on one hand mm. i think a lot of authors were were had their hands behind, tied behind their back when it came to those things but yeah. at the same time like it's just hard to tell which authors were genuinely wanting to explore deeper relationships with native people and not just romance novels, but other novels as well. And film, I'd argue, copied a lot of the same tropes.
0: They shot 300 of us. One of those killed was a holy man called Joaquin Chante Thunderheart. He was killed while running for the stronghold. It is his blood, the same blood that was spilled in the grass and snow at Moony runs through your heart like a buffalo. Thunderheart has come, sent here to a troubled place to help his people. That's what I'm told.
1: I'm talking more about how native audiences see themselves and how they decode the, the representation that they have on screen. This reaches not just in film, but the whole mascot thing too, and other places of representation. I mean, I like Nightwolf from Mortal Kombat and John Redcorn, right? But like, other natives may have issue with with those representations. And with the negotiation, that is when you, of course you see the bad, but then with time and social progression and cultural progression, like we can kind of start to give choose and give and take with certain representations. And I mean, a lot of older natives don't really have an issue with the mascots as, as much. They just don't like, they i they actually see it more as like a sense of pride there's plenty of native people out there who root for the Washington Redskins simply because that's it's in the name hmm. it's the mascot right but you have younger people who are starting to like retrospectively look at the implications of using a native caricature for a mascot as very problematic and then you get people who are like no like we shouldn't be Doing it like this. And it's the same thing with representation in films, where I mentioned that there are Native people who love John Ford's films. They love John Wayne's films when there's like obviously just very <laughs> racist, overtly racist rhetoric towards natives in those films. But the older Native folk, they'll love it because they don't really care too much about the representation. They care. There's, they're, on screen, because at the time there was hardly any representation like that in big popular media.
0: I grew up at a time when John Ford and John Wayne and Randolph Scott et al. were uh, massacring Indians with single shots. Turn around, dude. That was in the late 40s, and I was in elementary school in Vallejo, California. Because of those movies, my brother and I were the only Indians in in the neighborhood and in town and in school. We had to fight our way out of those theaters.
1: The same thing with putting Native imagery on, like, products, motorcycles, cigarettes, Red Man tobacco, that on some places and in, in a lot of Native country, it sells big because they see themselves on the packaging and that kind of incentivizes them to buy more of it. Right. You know? But that's that's what the older generation and the younger generation now, I think, is starting to look deeper into these things. And again, that goes with representation in film and media as well and, and everything else. And so people start to negotiate whether or not they like a certain representation or they don't. A, a good example of this, to put it into like a more non-native lens, because like, I, I live here in Utah. And so there's a very high Mormon and or LDS population here, religious group. And a show came out on Hulu recently with Andrew Garfield called Under the Banners of Heaven. And the show, it talks about a real life murder that happened just, you know, 15 miles up the road from here back in the 70s. And it was a religious radical murder. But the the main character that Andrew Garfield plays is LDS. But the, the show kind of goes back and forth and kind of shows a lot of the problematic histories with the LDS church and everything. There's this sense of looking at the church through critical eyes. And a lot of the people that I work with and hang out with were very offended. Some were offended, but some were like, well, no, I think it's important for us to kind of Look at this. Look at the the history of our church, and then very rarely there were LDS people who soaked it in and enjoyed it, right? Hmm. But whenever I try to explain this idea of opposition, negotiation, and acceptance, I use that as an example. Well, Mostly hmm. just because where I where I'm living, it's how it's how you see yourself, you know. And, and again, it, this goes into a whole nother conversation of about like, it, what the Creator's intention what is the creator's intention versus what does the audience get out of it and, and right. stuff like that. Great Powhatan, I will lead our warriors to the river and attack. We will destroy these invaders the way we destroyed the Massawomix. Kokuam, in that battle, we knew how to fight our enemy, but these pale visitors are strange to us. Take some men to the river to observe them. Let us hope they do not intend to stay. I hereby claim this land... And all literatures in the name of His Majesty King James the First, and do so name this settlement James Town. Bravo, bravo, beautifully spoken, sir. Mm. also means he felt that his involvement in Pocahontas was, or like the fact that the Disney Pocahontas film was being made was like revolutionary for the time. And then you look back now, it's like, sure, <laughs> but I did that. At the same time, it was for the time. like He genuinely thought that this is a children's film that is openly admitting and showcasing the racism and sexism of the early settlers, right? That was his justification of being involved in it. By ignoring
0: the Indian and what we have to say, you are dooming your own country. Because there is a saying, a nation that does not know its history has no future
1: for a lot of creators and actors it was like if you know i better be the one to be in this because if they just put red face on a white actor it's not going to come across right i might as well be the one to try to you know do my part Basically, and I think back in the day, it was a lot of creator native actors kind of felt that way. And I would argue mm-hmm. a lot of native actors still feel that way today where mm-hmm. they feel like, hmm, well, this is, this film is is having native representation. It sounds like they don't have anyone else to be in it. So I, I better do my part to ensure that we can get the best that we can get. Right. Mm-hmm. And uh, I feel like that's where Cliff Curtis was coming from with his involvement in Avatar 2. Mm-hmm. Of setting the tone, I think he he really wanted to really let the production know that, like, yeah, like if you're gonna make these blue aliens, basically us in space, we kind of want <laughs> to like let you all know what the intention is <laughs> going to be. So, yeah,
0: if you intend on doing that, then we'll try to do it right. Yeah, my son knows better than to take him outside the brief. The blame is his. I mean I put in uh, there as a as a viewer as well, or a reader, as a settler person myself, there's a negotiation of how I would like relations to be with native people. Yeah. There's a sense of what I would deeply hope for those relations to be, like a true cultural exchange, you know? Without yeah. All this trauma coming from Europe and all this exploitation and all of that. Like, I how beautiful it would be a true culture? Somewhere in my heart, I, I hold that, you know? And then what it is and what relations I see represented in film.
1: Yeah. On my YouTube channel, I was actually able to meet with Dan Trachenberg, the director of Prey. Oh, yeah. And just hearing his experiences with making that film... He was definitely someone who had to negotiate a lot. Hmm. And the biggest thing that I respected about him in making that film was he actually, him and his co-writer changed parts of the actual full story because they were having consultants on, right? Like they shifted everything in the story. Mm-hmm. And I guess for me right there, like that, it's just action, listening Mm -hmm. and action. And he negotiated, he obviously had to negotiate within himself to be like, oh, okay, if I want to do my best to make sure that these people are portrayed in a good light, in a respectful light, I'm going to have to change parts in the script to, to reflect
0: I remember when Father told me I was ready for Katamia, my big hunt. You were little, so Mother took you to gather medicine. But Father and I we went up into the hills. The rain was bad; everything was wet. We crawled through the mud, and my bowstring got ruined. Them. You were sleeping. I was waiting for it to circle back. Now you're going to have to cross the river to get it. Whoa. Don't get your bowstring wet.
1: And I just, for me, that just hit hard because I'm like, mm. again, like you look at my rants about Avatar, right? Like, I don't think James Cameron could be bothered very much to change the script based on one indigenous person's feedback on it. Right. But a creator like Dan Trachtenberg actually did, you know. And I guess for me, it's like a non-Native creator is often going to have to negotiate. And I'd argue too that Native creators have to negotiate as well. I'm already having to do that with some of the stuff that I want to do.
0: <laughs> I like what you're saying also about the director of Prey. He changed himself according to that consultation. It wasn't just lip service. And it, it seems like that's that's the really juicy line when... Native people themselves are directly having a say and changing things.
1: Yeah, I actually had a commenter on one of my videos. He genuinely felt that like Apocalyptico by Mel Gibson was a more accurate representation of indigenous people than Prey was. But look at how that film was made. And then you look at kind of a lot of the historical compromises that Mel Gibson made. Like he had consultants and everything, but he kind of ran into the same issue that James Cameron had where his vision really had to be the main thing seen at the end of the film, right? right? And came with a lot of compromises in the sense that like there was a lot of inaccuracies. I won't take the story away from Apocalypse. It's a cool hero's journey. But when you talk about the representation and everything, and there's a quote at the beginning of a film that sets the tone and again, kind of tells me where Mel Gibson is coming from with that film. It's by a, a Western author, but basically what it boils down to, it was kind of just talking about how if civilizations fall, they fall from within hmm. and, and then the film begins. And so it's setting this, it's, it's, it's echoing the same rhetoric that, you know, the, the native nations were already falling. They were already killing wasn't, each other. It wasn't children. the
0: Europeans' already...
1: fault. Yeah, it uh, wasn't uh, all uh, the Europeans'
0: fault. Do you think there's, at this time, with our current, you know, predominant cultural biases and capacities and such, do you think as the budget increases, the freedom for really good representation decreases?
1: I would say it depends because globalization like works for that and against that at the exact same time, Hmm. because I'd argue global audiences, I would say maybe they don't care all too much about a white man protagonist It may be familiar because of all the films they probably grew up watching. But I look at Coco, Coco is a very interesting example, the Disney Pixar film. Mm. The country it was the most successful in outside of Mexico and the U.S. was China. And of course, China is a big market to begin with. But the fact that like this film is about Mexican culture and deals with ancestry, mm. it, it makes a lot a lot of sense as to why it did very well in China. So when we look at cases like Black Panther and Wakanda Forever, the first one in particular, Black Panther, it... It had the potential to be like a very unique Black American film, but it had to be attached to the Marvel franchise. And with a Marvel movie, you have certain checkbox yeah. things that need to make it a Marvel movie to appeal to a greater audience, right? Mm-hmm. But Black Panther managed to kind of balance those those things. It managed to balance having a very unique Thing to tell a very unique perspective to tell, but also fulfilling the greater check boxes that's needed to be successful financially, and as an intellectual property. Right. So I think it depends. I think the more the budget grows, I think it's it's gonna it's gonna take a lot for audiences to appreciate it, and also like with studios, and you have to also have to remember that like it's. The people who influence how a film is going to be perceived, it's one, the director and the writers, the studios, and then obviously the greater audience, the people that are watching it. And we're living in an era of algorithms. And a lot of people like to think that algorithms are like this malicious hive mind, when in reality, it's just reflecting what we put into it. right? And if certain genres of film or certain films aren't doing well, if we as the audiences are kind of creating this feedback loop and the studios and the directors and writers are literally just trying to like figure out like, what did the people want that mm-hmm. will sell? Right. Mm-hmm. And I don't know. I think with the times that are changing, if we get higher quality content of by POC stories that focus more on the character, focus on the story, and focus not so much on trying to blast out a message, that might change where mm-hmm. we'll have higher budget IPs or higher budget films be able to be both successful but also successful in having accurate and respectful and nuanced representations of marginalized groups in Western societies nice
0: answer yeah and i appreciate what you're saying like you yeah. know like with black panther 2 i just watched that wakanda forever and yeah there's all the marvel stuff's there in the sense there's a, there's grand fight scenes and all of that and you've got this very strong african nation who's being in relationship with the rest of the world negotiating with the rest of the world in the modern times that's difficult not as the underdog. They have their challenges, they have their internal challenges, they have their external challenges. Beautiful through ancestry and science, these two potentially competing worldviews.
1: Yeah. And the, the one thing I really appreciated about Black Panther was that it allowed it allowed those the mistakes to be addressed by those people instead of being called out by a white person. <laughs> you know, when that happens all too often, there's a scene from the movie adaptation of Bury My Heart at Wounded Knee. And there's a scene where Colonel at the time, and he sits down with Sitting Bull.
0: No matter what your legends say, you didn't sprout from the plains like the spring grasses, and you didn't coalesce out of the ether. You came out of the Minnesota woodlands armed to the teeth and set upon your fellow man. You massacred the Kiowa, the Omaha, the Ponca, the Oto, and the Pawnee without mercy. Chief Sitting Bull, the proposition that you were a peaceable people before the appearance of the white man is the most fanciful legend of all. You were killing each other for hundreds of moons before the first white stepped foot on this continent. You conquered those tribes, lusting for their game and their lands, just as we have now conquered you for no less noble a cause. This is your story of my people. This is the truth, not legend.
1: And Sitting Bull's like, no, this is your version of the story. And then he goes, no, it's the truth. Now, while it may or may not be the truth, what's interesting is that this clip, this single clip from this broader film get is on YouTube. <laughs> hmm. And uh, the, the the channel that it's associated with and then the comments that are under this video are all just echoing the entire thing that this character is talking about, right? Right. And I guess for me, it's like, that's the one thing that kind of makes me a little irked. It's just like, well, yeah, that, that happened, but like, why do you get to come in and tell us what we did wrong when we can be in charge of, Fixing those Ooh, those things. That's
0: such a good point. We
1: can be the ones to address. You know, I mean, like I'm Navajo, right? And the Ute were one of our traditional enemies to this day. You know, there's still some weird things going on, but for the most part, we're all just kind of like, yeah, we're we're chill. You know. <laughs> And what I liked about Mm -hmm. Black Panther was it allowed a lot of the infighting that happened outside and before colonization to just resolve itself. Let us resolve it. And that's the one thing that I think is kind of lost in our modern discourse. Unfortunately, a lot of white voices, both conservative and liberal, center themselves in trying to address the wrongs of their ancestors, but also the wrongs of the ancestors of BIPOC people now. Mm. And I don't want to make it so insular, but at the same time, it's like we can talk among ourselves. We can figure this out. My representations video, the one that I use Pocahontas as a thumbnail, Mm. I would argue that that video is more targeted towards Native people more so than non-Native people Mm. to kind of get us internally thinking about you know, how we decode our representations, right? Mm. But I think the more and more we get films and popular media by certain groups of people, it allows for a space to have those conversations, to be brutally blunt. It's just like, okay, this story, like not a lot of white people are going to read this story. Let's actually talk about the issues we need to talk about within our own communities. (laughs) (laughs) if that makes sense. But like these broader stories, they allow these communities to have these conversations. And that's what Black Mm. Panther like did so well because Killmonger is an archetype that is very much alive for a lot of Black Americans. He is the angry and very rightfully so angry Black American uh, archetype. Dispossessed. And then you compare that to... Yeah, and then T'Challa, who is detached from that reality because he didn't grow up there, you know? He's born into culture. He's also born into privilege. (laughs) Y'all sitting up here comfortable. Must feel good. It's about 2 billion people all over the world that looks like us, but their lives are a lot harder. Wakanda has the tools to liberate them all. And there's... There's a very great video breakdown by a YouTube viewer named FD Signifier, who's a Black creator, and he goes into a very deep, intense analysis of Black Panther that's actually very political, very fascinating. But when we get by POC creators, we get to kind of have these stories in our hands like this, Mm -hmm. we're kind of more nuanced with how we portray ourselves and have conversations about our relationship to each other and then our relationship to the broader Western collective. Mm -hmm. So that's what I think can be the good thing to happen. And then obviously those in other communities, white communities, hopefully it can also spark some questions within themselves too Mm -hmm. about how they relate to other groups and how they relate to within themselves.
0: I I love that. because if the thesis was natives are savages so it's you know it's all justified and everything and then the antithesis is something like it was totally fine here before settlers came guilt comes right and the and the simplification of things yeah. you know it was in eden before people didn't fight it was you know people just lived in nature and and in touch with you know spirit all the time and only the Europeans. Like Avatar. <laughs> yeah, you kind of like that, you know. Is And the Europeans brought all the bad stuff, which might seem like a sort of progress, but it's it's kind of self-abusive in, in a sense of, you know, all it's, all this bad stuff came from Europe, like were the cursed ones or something. And it's easily defeated by somebody who knows a bit of history here. They're like, well, there was fighting, you know. It wasn't actually like mm-hmm. And people could pick up. Things like that conversation you're talking about and say, yeah, just see, just see, you know, your your guys are saying it was all peaceful here. It was just as bad, maybe worse, you know. But neither of those are very interesting in a sense, right? What you're saying is a lot more interesting because it gets into the rights of individuals and peoples to deal with their own stuff, to tell their own stories, to work with their
1: own problems, Well, it also humanizes us more, again, with the history of both the bloodthirsty savage and the noble savage, those tropes kind of made us non-human. They're not full-fledged, but like you you give nuance to these characters by the people of that group, you're allowed to explore our humanity a lot more. You know, I mean, I will say one of the very few things I actually appreciated about Apocalyptico is that there was a villain or villains, but they were Mayan.
0: You just can't see a world in which you could have overreacted. You're stubborn.
1: You're completely unable to listen to reason.
0: (gasps) Oh, so I'm the angry black woman now. That's not what I said. Even if you're still mad at me, it's no reason to undermine me at every turn. Besides slanderous Minishanka land acknowledgements,
1: what other tricks do you plan to pull? Oh, so now I'm the tricky, shifty Indian?
0: I didn't even know that was a thing.
1: Oh, it's a thing. One of the writers of Rutherford Falls, Tommy Pico, the people in the panel are asked, what would you like to see on screen someday? And he said, I want to see a gay, raunchy villain. Something kind of like Will Farrell's character in the Zoolander series. You know, he's just absurd and he's a villain right but he's absurd and somewhat likable cuz he's so just just goofy right and someone in my comment section was like we don't want that we don't want villains but if the villain is handled in a way from a native creator that this character is you know maybe potentially a catalyst for like maybe how we feel about certain things why not It adds more humanity to who we are.
0: I'm thinking with the Haudenosaunee, the Iroquois, you know, with there was the one man, he was a chief.
1: Oh, Tadadaho.
0: Uh-huh. He was the villain of the story, if you want to put it that way. And the peacemaker came down and he united the different people who'd been warring. Um, As I understood it, he replaced the obligation of vengeance for a loved one with another kind of ceremony, Mm -hmm. which is beautiful just to to like, you can still honor your loved one, but here's a way to do it that doesn't escalate a cycle of vengeance. And they didn't kill. Tadadaho. Tadadaho. That's one
1: of the names. He has various names, but one of them I know was Tadadaho.
0: So they didn't kill Tadadaho, but rather change his heart. And it
1: was a woman who changed his heart, which I thought was really interesting. Well, can you tell that part of it? the part of that story is uh, it was a woman she actually became one of the disciples of Anawita and uh, she was kind of like a a bit of like a a matriarchal figure in the sense that like she in a sense she's kind of like a Mary Magdalene type character her house was a refuge for a lot of people very hmm. charitable very forgiving and she learned about this peace plan and she was kind of the one to face down with Tatadaho and talk him down and and convincing him of this, the the great law of peace and everything. But I just thought it was interesting. It's just one of those those stories where, you know, through a feminine lens where that type of perspective can be seen a lot broader and a lot clearer. But yeah, but the the whole thing with Tadadaho, him being a villain but not being killed, he, he changes. Mm-hmm. And I guess for me, too, I keep going back to Black Panther, but it's unique in the sense that, like, our protagonist, T'Challa, actually changes his mind to what Killmonger's vision was. Right. But, like, obviously goes about it a different way. Like, he fulfilled his villain's mission, mm-hmm. <laughs> but went about it his own way, you know? And I don't know. You, you just, you're able to get those stories that are just a lot more richer in humanity when That's you it. allow you allow us to just have those conversations and just give us the money give us the give us the resources and we'll we'll punch out some really good stuff of course there'll be hit hit or misses here and there but like i don't know i just think that there is certain by poc voices out there that can offer perspectives that are just not necessarily new but within the cultural framework can frame it in a way that is just unique and interesting hmm everyone else to kind of take a look at. And obviously too, like I would argue a lot of broader audiences are more fascinated with particularly indigenous aspects of filmmaking and everything else.
0: I invite you to speak about some of the most inspiring work out there now for you personally. And if you want to speak a bit about your own work and what's really inspiring you
1: yeah, I think the greatest influence that have inspired me is some of the earlier indie native films, like like Spoke Signals. I think a lot of people, mm. I, I need to make a video about this, but just the impact that that film had on not only the broader North American Native collective, but also just me as an individual, and like how I'm like, wow, like there is films out there that can be made about us in the modern day.
0: How many times have you seen dances with wolves? A hundred, two hundred? Oh, jeez. You have seen it that many times, haven't you? Don't you even know how to be a real Indian? I guess not. Oh, shit, no wonder, jeez. I guess I'll have to teach you then, ain't it? First of all, quit grinning like an idiot. Indians ain't supposed to smile like that, get stoic. No like this you gotta look mean or people won't respect you white people will run all over you if you don't look mean you gotta look like a warrior you gotta look like you just came back from killing a buffalo
1: but our tribe never hunted buffalo, we were fishermen and the film itself is just so deep, a very human story, you know. And I connected mm. to it very personally because my life is so similar to the protagonist's. And so, hmm. and then you add the layer of him being native on top of that, it just like hits even harder, right? It had a huge impact on the broader native community in the sense that everyone quotes it all the time hmm. uh, Hey, Victor, heard the your dad. <laughs> like that, you know. That one hit me too because it was also inspirational in the sense that it was an indie film from a director Chris Eyre who just had this vision to create this very unique story unique in the sense that of, of who it's about the quarterlane indian nation it's like no one really knows too much about the quarterlane people in idaho you know the mm. the lakota have been kind of the poster boys of hollywood natives for a very long time and the Comanche and the Cherokee, but like the Quarterlanes, like no one talks about them. But that film is inspirational in that way too, in the sense of like how it was made and and how it got to that point. And obviously his collaboration with the writing of Sherman Alexi helped a lot as well. I guess I have a myriad of films that just kind of influenced me. I like a lot of A twenty four films. They make a lot of pretentious horror films and Stuff like that. High praise. They did, you know, The Witch. The Witch is one of my favorite horror films of all time. And The Lighthouse. Anything Robert Eggers does, hmm. I watch. I love that filmmaker. Huh. He's very inspirational because he has such an intense eye for historiosity mixed with mythology. Hmm. And uh, the Northman that he directed okay. was by far, one of my favorite films last year, simply because it's like what I would want to make, but like hmm. in a Navajo setting, hmm. like really go all in with the the historiosity, but really upplay the mythology of it all. Like he did a, such hmm. an amazing job of us seeing the world of view of the early Vikings and just showing it and. Hmm. That inspires me to to like that. I want to make something like that someday. So like my my influences and my inspirations are just kind of all over the place. Uh And I often get anxiety about, you know, what kind of work do I want to kind of put myself into? (laughs) Um, Mm -hmm. At the same time, I think I'm just going to not limit myself and just work on whatever I want to work on. And so right now I'm actually... In the process of finishing up the script for a short film, I'm going to try to make this summer. And the goal is for it to be an all in Navajo and it's a comedy. It's not that it hasn't been done per se, but like in the way that I want to do it, I don't think it's ever been done before. And then I have a whole bunch of other stuff down the line I want to make, but this is, I guess, my first steps putting myself out there into that field. Because there's other stories I want to tell that aren't necessarily that have to do with native people. I would love to tell other stories of other indigenous peoples around the world. Hmm. Uh, I would love to explore the Ainu people and their legacy in Japan. Hmm. I'd love to, to explore that and look at the Japanese colonization and what that did to them. Hmm. And stuff like that. Like, well, I wonder what story can can be there. Stuff like that. You know, I'm kind of all over the place. But at the same time, that kind of broadens my horizon of influence that I can literally just pick and choose lots of influences and find my way of matching them together. I love doing that. That's kind of what mm-hmm. I'm all about. I like, to, I like to mix and bash genres together. I like to, to synthesize in order to indigenize. That was kind of my my thing I strive to be inspired I try to look for the good in certain forms of media I look at films and other forms of media as like people in the sense that they're not perfect but they can speak to you in a way that can help you reflect on on reality help you reflect on the extra reality that we may or may not experience so in the end it's storytelling
0: (laughs) Well, that's really cool to hear your influences and, and what you're working on and where you're heading.
1: And my YouTube channel, I mean, I'd argue my YouTube channel, I kind of see it more as a, a catalog of work as opposed to me trying to be a content creator, you know. My main goal is to break into the industry and try to tell these stories without getting sucked into it and dying. <laughs> <laughs> that's some huh?
0: yeah. Yeah, there's rich stories to be told.
1: One of the things that I want to try to do is decolonizing the filmmaking process, if that makes sense. Like you said, like it's very individualistic. The auteur theory is both good and bad. The auteur theory mm-hmm. is what leads to everyone saying, like, this is a Scorsese film. This is a Spielberg film. This is a mm-hmm. Tim Burton film, a Nolan film, right? It centers the main project maker of it all, Mm -hmm. but there's another school of thought that came around the same time of auteur theory. It was a response to auteur theory of basically saying that like, no, like filmmaking is a collaborative effort. You have grips, cinematographers, you have the gaffers, Mm -hmm. you have PAs, you have production designers all of these voices come together. The director and the writers, they're all there collaborating, at least that's how it should be,
0: mm-hmm. Of
1: collaborating with all these people and it becomes a team effort. I wanna try to find a way to do that in the filmmaking process of going to the more indigenous roots of the community efforts of making this happen. You know, like, that was not just, they were like, all right, action, cut, all right, bye, guys. Like, they were, like, when we were
0: tearing up, they were, like, there for us. Sterling was there for us, you know? Like, that's our community. That's what we do.
1: It's a bunch of, it's a bunch of Indians sitting around, like, collectively mourning, but also celebrating our family members and our community members. It's healing in a way. And we had smudged, and we, um had shared experiences that each of us have have gone through with each other. Really trying to to involve other people and listen to other people's voices. Mm. Uh, I was talking about editing my own short film, right? But my creative partner was like, no, we should just hire an editor, let them do it, because they might offer a fresh perspective or offer certain perspectives that you yourself aren't seeing yet and I was like well no duh that makes total sense like you know mm-hmm. uh, hire people who are competent and know what they're doing but also really try to encourage that community effort of making things happen that's kind of like one of my goals too is I kind of want to see what the the, the filmmaking process can be without centering yourself <laughs> Put your hands up on the table, like we just did. Close your eyes. I'm gonna have a little prayer. I need your help. What? Not you. Keep your eyes
0: shut. Eyes closed, no matter what happens. Okay focus on the dark. I was listening to Sterling Harjo, director, Reservation Dogs, and he was talking with one of his co-writers and co-directors on the show. And, you know, they're talking about group writing. You know, often you have the writing room on on TV shows, partly because they got to write a lot more quickly than it would Mm -hmm. be on a a film. But that sounds really interesting to me, you know, I've done quite a bit of writing, not screenplays, but short stories and a couple books. And I'm drawn more these days towards writing with other people. I want to do more of that, you know, because yeah, somebody's coming with such a different perspective. And it just changes the idea and it adds this other element to it that wouldn't have come from me. And it it flushes it out. You know, the whole thing becomes broader because this other worldview is coming in.
1: I like to say that was the great downfall of the Star Wars prequels. George Lucas hired a bunch of yes men and didn't have anyone help him write his scripts. Mm. And then we got what we got with the prequels, right? Because he he more so delegated his vision as opposed to trying to share that vision in my opinion. Mhm. Of course it isn't like unique to, you know, indigenous filmmaking, but it's something that I think can be way more effective in in helping certain visions come to life. Everything everywhere all at once that came out recently did that very well. It was a team effort.
0: Mm-hmm. A
1: very small team, but like they were very open about how collaborative everything was. So much so that like, you know, Jamie Lee they they, they allowed Jamie Lee Curtis to kind of have a, a say in her her wardrobe and what they thought her character would do and stuff like, that. yeah, why not? And you know, instead of like James Cameron who has to have 100% control over the entire vision of the thing with collaborative filmmaking, I see it as a more indigenous way of filmmaking and having that community effort to see a vision because, I mean, in the end, that's kind of how it was back in the day. It was a a collaborative effort between everyone to Mm -hmm. see like what what our future is, where our future is going, you know? So Mm -hmm. to bring it home, I guess it's just, again, like I said, Let by POC, Indigenous filmmakers, give them the chance to be able to tell these stories, give them resources to learn so they can make quality stories so that we can just, again, have just more interesting dialogues about society, about life, about culture and politics and all of that.
0: Yeah, beautiful. Well, thank you so much for coming on the podcast and sharing your thoughts on this. This has been really rich really appreciating these perspectives and the progression of filmmaking and native representation and native involvement over time. And yeah, just really appreciating your perspective.
1: And uh, thanks for having me on. I enjoy kind of talking with others and getting their perspectives and bouncing ideas back and forth. It helps me grow as an individual. So Mm -hmm. thanks for having me on. Yeah.
0: Awesome. Thank you for listening to the Story Paths podcast. And if you like this episode, you can do me a favor and share it with a friend or a group, people who you think will appreciate it as well. You can connect with me on Instagram, link in the show notes. And I'm also on Substack these days as well, publishing podcasts and comics. Okay, best wishes.